Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, Les Enlumineurs listeners. If you came to visit us at the Winter Show, you might have noticed that we have had many different works with enamel on view. You may also have noticed that these objects are very different from one another. So today, we're going to explore the history of enamel, the different techniques for enameling jewelry and sculpture, and explore a few of the beautiful enamel jewels we have on view currently through our revival jewels and through our historical inventory. With an effect like melted glass, vitreous enamel is made by fusing powdered silicate and other minerals to a base material, usually a metal or ceramic, by firing. This is often called powdered glass, but this term can be misleading as the ground material, especially in the ancient and medieval worlds, did not begin as a human-made glass product. It simply consists of many of the components that compose glass today. Importantly, an a priori condition of the enameling process is that the enamel must be made of a substance that is fusible, meaning meltable and fusible, at a lower temperature than the base on which it rests. So, the powder melts, flows, and then hardens to a smooth, durable, vitreous coating. The word vitreous comes from the Latin vitreum, meaning glass. Nearly all enamels incorporate a silicate of lead with various metallic oxides acting as colorants for the enamel, hence my earlier comment about minerals added to the base material. Enamel can be used on various surfaces, as I just noted. It can be on metal, glass, ceramic, stone, or any material that will withstand that fusing temperature. The term enamel usually refers to work on metal. The same technique, which is used on other bases, is often known by other terms. So on glass, it's called enameled glass or painted glass, and on pottery, it is called overglazed decoration. The word enamel comes from the old high German word to smelt via the old French esmail, or from a Latin word smaltum, first found in a 9th century life of Leo IV. Enameling is an old and widely adopted technology. Enamel was very important in the Middle Ages, beginning with the late Romans and then the Byzantine, who began to use cloisonne enamel in imitation of cloisonne inlays of precious stones, just as we sometimes find glass beads in imitation of cabochons on ancient and medieval rings. The Byzantine enamel style was widely adopted by people during the migration period in Northern Europe. The Byzantines then began to use cloisonne more frequently to create images, and this was also copied in Western Europe. Cloisonne is an ancient technique first appearing in the art and jewelry of ancient Egypt, like the pictorial jewels worn by the pharaohs, and also like the 12th century BCE tombs on the island of Cyprus. It was used to decorate metalwork with colored material held in place or separated by metal strips or wires. 
these colored materials could be gemstones, glass, or other materials. In the medieval period, we often see cloisonne featuring garnet inside of these wire brackets. The decoration is formed by first adding compartments to the metal object by soldering or otherwise affixing metal wires or thin strips placed on their edges. These remain visible in the finished piece, separating the different compartments of the enamel or inlays. I always think of the English word closet, which is obviously not exactly a homophone for cloisonne, but which reminds me that the term cloisonne is related to discrete compartments. The French word actually means a partition, or in the 12th century old French, it means enclosure. So you can think of cloisonne enamel as consisting of compartments or closets or cupboards or enclosures, as opposed to the other enameling techniques which we will discuss shortly. So there were two different techniques in Byzantine and Latin European cloisonne enamel that are very distinguished from each other. The earliest is the Wallschmelz, which is a German word meaning full enamel, or literally full melt. This is a technique where the whole of a gold base plate is to be covered in enamel. The edges of the plate are turned up to form a reservoir, and gold wires are soldered into place to form the cloisons. The enamel design therefore covers the entire plate. In the Senkschmelz technique, again a German word meaning sunk enamel or literally sunk melt, the parts of the base plate that hold the design are hammered down, leaving a surrounding gold background. This is also seen in contemporary Byzantine icons and mosaics with gold glass backgrounds and leads into the next type of enameling that we will discuss. So to this sunken surface, the wires and enamels are then added in this pocked base material. If you flip the base plate over, the outline of the design is apparent on the reverse. The transition between the two techniques occurred around the year 900 in Byzantine enamel and around 1000 in the Latin West. Although we do not have any early medieval examples of cloisonne currently at Les Anouneurs, we do have an example of cloisonne made by one of the most important of the revival jewelers of the 19th century, that is, Fortunato Pio Castellani. This brooch elevates the technique, so associated with the height of Byzantium and the Latin Romanesque, by incorporating thickly twisted wires. The enamel is contained in these gold wire cells, as in the cloisonne technique, but as the floriate cells are not filled up to the rim with enamel, the cells form a relief pattern emphasizing that wire. The Castellani workshop tended not to fill cloisonne cells entirely, in order to emphasize the sense of enclosure that we just discussed. We can see this in another brooch by the Castellani workshop, now at the British Museum, which features a central circular micro-mosaic panel depicting the Lamb of God on a green ground with a gold halo against a diapered background of red, blue, and gray. The dished border is the interesting part for us here. It's ornamented in cloisonne enamel with circles containing a lozenge with incurved sides, which can also be read as a kind of four-petal motif in green on a pale blue ground. These are sunken, although the wires used a solid gold, not the elegantly twisted wires seen in our brooch. 
This recalls another of our revival jewels, which also features a bold, single-wire-worked cloisonné enamels, which is this bracelet by Fromont Melis with an angel playing a viol, made in France around 1847. Unlike the Castellani cloisonnés, this piece uses silver wires with royal blue enamel framing the central sculptural figure that echoes French cathedral sculpture of the 13th century. The framing niche and canopy above and below the figure imitate those on the facade of Notre Dame. Fromont Melis was the leading jeweler of the Romantic era in Paris. His sculpturesque compositions in a kind of troubadour style were chiefly inspired by Gothic works of art, as is evident in this gorgeous bracelet. Another of the chief types of enameling techniques is champlevé. This is an enameling technique in which troughs or cells are carved, etched, or die-struck or cast into the surface of a metal object and filled with vitreous enamel. So again, it's very similar to that second technique, senkschmelz, that we discussed just previously. Except, of course, senkschmelz still uses wire cells to create the enameling differences. These troughs in Champlevé are filled with vitreous enamel. The piece is then fired until the enamel fuses and, when cooled, the surface of the object is polished. The uncarved portions of the original surface remain visible as a frame for the enamel designs. Typically, they're gilded in medieval works. The name comes from the French for raised field. And here, field refers to the background, although the technique in practice actually lowers the area that's enameled, so the subject is insunk into the ground. This technique is widely associated with Romanesque art, especially with Limoges. Often, enamels of this period are known as Limoges enamels. Most of these objects were produced to create reliquaries, or that is, containers for sacred relics. Limoges enamels fell out of fashion following the plague years, but the center revived in the late 15th century, but now specializing in the technique of painted enamel, which I will discuss shortly. In the French Renaissance, it was the leading center with several dynastic workshops who often signed or punchmarked their work. These new Renaissance workshops turned to more secular commissions generally, creating grotesques and mythological pieces or with moralizing iconography rather than sacred objects or tools for the church or shrine. Luxury pieces such as plates, plaques, and ewers were painted with mannerist decoration of the pictorial and figural scenes, which on vessels were surrounded by elaborate borders, much like the borders of Gothic and Renaissance manuscripts. Enamel can be applied in the round, also known as enamel and rond boss, which developed in France in the late 14th century. This technique produces small, three-dimensional figures or reliefs, largely or entirely covered in enamel. It differs from the older techniques, which all produced only enamel on a flat or curved surface and, mostly like Champlevé, normally used only non-precious metals such as copper, which were gilded to look like gold. A famous early example of enamel and rond boss is the Dunstable Swan Jewel. 
This is a gold and enamel brooch in the form of a swan made in England or France around 1400. It is now in the British Museum, although it was excavated in 1965 on the site of Dunstable Friary. This is a fascinating object made as a livery badge and given by an important figure to his followers. Most likely the future Henry V of England, who was the Prince of Wales from 1399. Henry V was associated with the Bohun Swan, a heraldic badge used originally in England by the medieval noble family of de Bohun. This heraldic imagery should have been extinct by Henry's time due to the death of the last senior male line of Bohun, but after Mary de Bohun married the Lancastrian Henry Bolingbroke in 1380, who was the future King Henry IV, the swan was adopted by the royal house of Lancaster, which continued to use it for over a century. The swan, gorged and chained with a crown or, meaning a golden crown, is especially associated with Lancastrian use and echoes the white heart, similarly gorged and chained, used by King Richard II, who was deposed by Henry Bolingbroke, which he began to use as a livery badge from 1390. Richard II's treasure roll of 1397 includes, together with several of his own white heart badges, a swan badge with a golden chain, perhaps presented by one of his Lancastrian enemies. This roll reads, quote, Item, a gold swan, enameled with white, with a little gold chain hanging around the neck, weighing two ounces, value 46S8D, end quote. He declared to Parliament that he had exchanged liveries with his uncles as a sign of amity at various moments of reconciliation. This Dunstable Swan, now at the British Museum, appears entirely white with enamel, aside from a few touches of black enamel around the features, a golden beak exposed, and, of course, the golden chain and crown. Enamel and rhomboss was also used for objects such as small, personal, portable reliquaries. We have had quite a few objects and rhomboss, including currently our heart-shaped pendant from our Meaningful Jewels collection. This is a double-sided heart-shaped pendant in gold and enamel openwork. This work is actually featuring both Champlevé and Enronboss enamel, showing the fusion of the two styles and techniques. A blue enameled frame surrounds an oval capsule with convex glass and translucent red and opaque white cartouche and wings. The bulbous outer border consists of opaque blue strap work alternating with opaque white enameled daisy-like flowers and red globules. A baluster-shaped base with red and blue enamel for the gold pendant loop is apparent. Such hearts, given as tokens of love, became popular in Renaissance jewelry. Occasionally combined with a sacred image, these tokens symbolize divine love. It recalls the famous Darnley Jewel, which was commissioned by Lady Margaret Dublas, Countess of Lennox, in honor of her husband, who died in battle in 1571. This Scottish heart-shaped enameled jewel opens like a locket to reveal an enameled gold surface covered with a baffling multitude of inscriptions and emblems concerning topics as varied as time, pleasure, and victory. 
Sometimes Ver Iglomise is mistaken for enamel work, as seen in our southern German reliquary pendant in book form, which was made between 1630 and 1640. Although combining glass and color, this technique is not an enamel, as it consists of back-painting glass and does not incorporate any firing or significant heat process. You can usually tell the difference by examining a work from various angles. If the color appears to saturate the viscous glass-like material, it's likely an enamel. If it appears applied to the back of the material, it's ver iglomise. We, of course, always have beautiful works of early modern enamel, usually rings featuring enamel and rhombos. Two of my current favorites of these rings are the love ring with a bow and flowers and the bold emerald and enamel solitaire ring. Both of these are made around 1680, and the two pieces use gold and enamel to highlight the sumptuous qualities of a major natural material, which is given a central position in the jewelry's composition. For the bow ring, which is so called for its bow-shaped bezel, it houses a central pearl which is absolutely stunning. With an almost marbled appearance, the pearl glistens and, rather than a silvery or blue sheen, it features warm golden tones. The second ring is a solitaire ring that shows off a large Colombian table-cut emerald set with colored enamel on the trumpet-shaped shoulders. The shapely form of the enamel shoulders and the vivid effects of the color suggest the influence of Giles Laguerre, court jeweler to King Louis XIII. He published a series of Baroque designs in 1663 for rings that were widely disseminated, influencing goldsmiths throughout continental Europe. And of course, we cannot discuss enamels without concluding on my favorite enamel work, which is currently held at the gallery. That is, the heart-shaped pendant with a cherub by Carlo Giuliano. This exquisite pendant was made in England, probably in London, around 1880. It is gold, with enamels and tiny seed pearls studding the border of the heart like a crown. This is an exquisite example of the height of enameling techniques. It's done in a style and technique usually referred to as painted enamel. The painted enamels of the Renaissance and portrait miniatures of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries show the technique at its most ambitious and artistic form, in which the craftsman attempted to create a vision of an oil painting, using instead a metal sheet, rather than canvas, and enamels instead of paints. Although enamels cannot achieve the large scale of oil paint without extreme labor, oil paint on canvas will eventually fade and darken, while the colors of enamels are permanent, forever jewel-like and vivid. In Giuliano's Cupid, Brilliant translucent red enamel sets off the pale blue wings that symmetrically frame the faced and downcast eyes of the cherub. Feathery wings and curly hair are skillfully brushed with golden highlights, and these are probably best appreciated under magnification. I love this work because in it we can see the close relationship between artists working in vastly divergent mediums, and especially the relationship between the pre-Raphaelites, revivalist jewelers, and miniature painters. 
Similar cherubs appear in stained glass by the pre-Raphaelite Sir Edward Byrne Jones and in a drawing by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Collaborating with Giuliano, Byrne Jones was especially important as a designer of jewelry. Cherubs and hearts, often in the Byzantine style, occur in designs now in the Morgan Library and Museum, which he made for jewels. This piece also recalls that such jewels were intended as highly personal mementos. It has a glass lid on the reverse that was meant to hold a keepsake, suggesting that the present heart-shaped pendant was perhaps intended as a gift for a member of the pre-Raphaelite circle. So, thank you for exploring enamel works and techniques with me today. We will be back in two weeks with our next podcast episode on a special text manuscript that will be featured in the New York Antiquarian Book Fair, which runs from Thursday, the 21st of April to the 24th. If you missed meeting us in person at the Winter Show last week, be sure to stop by the New York Book Fair at the Park Avenue Armory. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and even to share this podcast on social media or with a friend who might enjoy the episode's topic. You can find out more about our jewelry and revival enamels on our website, and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Les Thank you for listening. <laughs>